welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Trevor, for being um, a part of this conversation. And I'm looking forward to talking with you. And I'll, I'll try to introduce you a little bit, and then you can fill it in, you know, because I don't know you that well. And just to, you know, to start off just by letting people know who you are. But you are um, a missionary um, in Indonesia, Papua. 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 The, the most eastern province of Indonesia is Papua. Okay. Not Papua New Guinea. Um, they're on the same island, but Papua New Guinea is the right side, the right side, or the east side of the island of New Guinea. But the left side, the west side, is uh, owned by Indonesia. Okay. So. Okay. And you're here with your. Uh, Family, was it sickness that brought you back to the states? Well, no, we were healing in Malaysia. We chose okay. to. Uh, if you're sick with tropical diseases, it's better to be treated in a tropical country, okay. as long as it's um, the healthcare is good. So we went to Penang, Malaysia, to heal, which is a center of medical tourism, and then it was only about an hour to Singapore as well, where probably one of the best centers of infectious diseases. And tropical diseases are uh, are is located. Okay. Um, so we came here to put my son into military school. Okay. And then all the borders closed because of COVID. I see. Yeah. And then it's been several years. How many years is it that you you've been serving as a missionary? We went for the first time in 2004. Uh, my son Noah is 16 now, and he was just six months old. Uh, during that first trip, came home and we raised support, and then we went back in 2006. We've okay. had two furloughs, and then illness took me off the field. Okay. Well, it's about best I can do for an introduction. How would you um, just, uh, you know, as far as like saying who you are, who Trevor is, you know, how would you put it if you were just to kind of put it in a <clears> nutshell? Oh. Well, I don't really know. I grew up here in Missouri and spent a lot of summers camping and fishing and hiking and canoeing. I spent a lot of time in the woods. And then at 18, I was saved and I wanted to serve Jesus, but not necessarily inside of a American church. And so God was very gracious to me and he allowed me to hike and canoe and spend a lot of time in the woods for the sake of Jesus. So it couldn't get better than that. Yeah. So it's been good. Uh, it's been hard. Hard. Um, you know, of course, the woods here in Missouri have poison ivy and ticks, but uh, it seems like everything bites you in Papua. Yeah. <laughs> so the woods are even uh, more intimidating at times in Papua. It's a beautiful wilderness, but very rugged, and it can get the best of you. I've, I've heard people say before, um, like people complain about, humans being hard on the environment. Well, the environment's kind of hard on humans, too, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, there's always the myth of, uh, you watch the National Geographic, and they'll be filming my people. They'll be covering the Korowai tribe, and they'll, they'll say nonsense, like, this is a tribe that lives in harmony with nature. And mm -hmm. that is, uh, you know, I used to get mad, and now I just laugh, because that's this, they just perpetuate this myth um, the people don't live in harmony with nature. They, they fight it tooth and nail, and they almost always lose. It's just a very difficult environment. And people hunt, and they gather, and they do their best. But most of them are dead by the time they're 40. It's just a, wow. it's a hard lifestyle. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I would like to talk with you about is just what the people of Indonesia, and particularly Papua that you're familiar with are like, because I think it kind of helps us to see ourselves, because it's kind of hard to see what are we like, unless we're seeing it a little bit um, from an outsider's perspective, or like in contrast to somebody who's not <clears throat> us, you know. So um, what are your, what's the, uh, what are your impressions about um, 
the differences between uh, us as cultural differences. Right. Oh, there are good and bad, and um, then there's different, and not everything that's different is is necessarily better or worse. Some things are just different. People around the world think differently and do things differently from us, and that's okay. And uh, stepping back from your own culture allows you to see the good and the bad of your own culture as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Americans can be very driven and direct, and we can go get things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes across as often pushy overseas. And then some Asian cultures are more indirect and reserved, and uh, they don't like confrontation, and they avoid it more than Americans do. So they come across as deceptive, or uh, they beat around the bush, mm-hmm. or even when things upset us, we can believe that they're lying to us because they will give you the relational yes. They will affirm what you say, whether they agree or not, because of the relationship they have with you. Hmm. Um, or they don't want to directly say something to offend you, so they'll try to hint at it. And uh, that, in some ways, that's more polite. Um, and so what always happens is sometimes when Indonesians and Americans encounter each other, uh, you know, I would cease to think, oh, the Javanese people are very sneaky because they never say what they mean. But now I see it as they're very polite and they're trying to preserve your feelings or they're trying to soften the impact of a statement. And when Javanese meet us, uh, uh, the Javanese people are one large ethnic group on the island of Java in Indonesia, and they're known for these traits. But when they meet Americans, we appear, well, we appear very fat, very loud, very rude and direct. Um, We don't soften the answer. We will directly contradict or confront. And so um, it's interesting to when those cultures meet, and hopefully both cultures can learn from each other. Also in many areas of Asia, they take care of their old people and respect their elders a lot more than we do. Um, They see the American practice of putting their old folks in nursing homes, and that seems like a terrible sin to many of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet uh, I see them treating their workers, their low-paid workers, like dirt. Hmm. Um, So there, there are different values that are played out. And it's easy to criticize or find fault. But after a while, um, you can fall in love with the culture as well. We love the people. We love the culture, the food. We miss the food. And uh, I wish we were there now. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Papua, Papua is very different than the rest of Indonesia. Indonesia is 17,000 islands as wide as New York to California. What is it? Is it? 270 million people now Hmm. it's a large nation Americans hardly know anything about Indonesia but it's almost got the same population as America Hmm. wow and it's majority Muslim but out in the very east they have taken control of the western part of Papua the western part of the island of New Guinea um, the Indonesian people are very, they're brown skinned, they have straight hair, so that the Papuans, when Papua literally means frizzy headed, because hmm. they're black Pacific Islanders, they're Melanesian people. So Melanesian people basically means black Pacific Islanders. So we have this nation of 273 million people, and 270 of them are brown skinned, straight haired, majority Muslim. And, you know, they would look like Filipino people. You know, that would be something Americans, oh, they've seen Filipino people, so Indonesians kind of look like that. But then in Papua, you have black people in the middle of the jungle. And they're not Muslim, they're mostly animistic or Christian. Mm -hmm. So their lifestyle is they either have some affiliation with the church or out interior in the tribal regions, they still fear spirits. And they still have rituals to appease spirits, and some of them live a a great deal of day-to-day life is to uh, keep these spirits on your side and not to offend them. Hmm. So what, so I've heard someone else speak, they they were speaking about Africa, but, um, you know, places that aren't secular, like the U.S., 
um, there's not like theism and atheism. Um, you know, my, my friend would tell me uh, from his experience in Africa, and um, it seems like everyone believes in this spiritual realm, and that's not so. There's not even a question about that, and it's just um, so. I guess when you're, um, you know, bringing the gospel to people, it's, it might be you know, bringing it to a different mindset than a person would here in the United States when many of the people I, I speak of speak to, you know, th they might, they're just very secular minded where they don't even yeah. think there is a God or if there is a God, it's um, some kind of kind of intelligence a, or something beyond a, that you unknowables something like that a but. deistic sort of view of god right. he right. he uh, wound up the watch maybe but he's not really involved in our day-to-day -day lives right yeah. yes that's a very western concept i find indonesia very refreshing because most everybody is religious um and there are six recognized religions there islam being the largest but they have many religious holidays. Uh, religious, religion is acknowledged in day-to-day -day life. Um, they speak about it freely. And uh, I don't envy. I know some people that do outdoor evangelism in the States or in the UK. And Western people, we're too busy. Um, we're, we have a secular mindset. In Papua, I canoe down the river or I swim across the river and I just tell the village leader I'm here to tell you about your creator gather the village in 10 minutes and most of the time almost everybody will be there and I can be just very direct and uh, even in media the media has covered me quite a bit in Indonesia I've made the regional paper I've made the national papers and each time I'm able to freely always speak about the gospel and there's no effort to silence or mute to me um, even even large newspapers they will carry my testimony of Jesus Christ and not censor or delete it at all um, as long as I say acknowledge that I'm a Christian and so Indonesia is a place where religion is more upfront and practiced visibly whereas in the West it's uh, it's a really hard time to get people to even speak about spiritual things and somebody told me that in Papua, if you were to scratch a Christian, he would bleed animism, meaning that his assumptions, his, his presuppositions are that good and bad spiritual forces are in constant conflict all around us every day. Um, the supernatural is, always, you're always aware of it and it's always present. But if you were to scratch an American Christian, he would bleed deism or even worse, atheism, mm -hmm. meaning that we operate as if God is not active in the world and, is, and as if angels and demons are not currently battling, even though we don't see them. And so I find Indonesia refreshing because you can be very direct hmm. and you don't have to make a lot of apologies or you, there's not a lot of going through the proofs of God mm -hmm. uh, there because everybody knows that there is a God. And I truly think everybody knows that there is a God. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're not ignorant of the truth. And so Romans 1 tells us that all of mankind knows that there is a deity. Um, we just don't want to acknowledge him because we want to glorify the creation instead of the creator. So in Romans 1, and I'm not an expert on that chapter, but when I've read it, sometimes I get the impression that um, that maybe uh, that it's a given and that there is a God there. But he goes into like um, idols and stuff like that. Yes. And um, so I, I wonder sometimes what Paul is saying there is like um, God is not like an idol. And that's the suppression to think that you can take a God whose mm -hmm. eternal power, you know, is obvious yes. and, and um, say he's like this creaturely thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I wasn't, so sometimes I'm looking at it. I'm just not sure if it's like, well, so we think it's like atheism or theism. I mean, atheism, right. That conflict. Mm -hmm. 
And I wonder if, like, the theism is just a given there, but it's like you're not acknowledging God as he is. Yes. You know, I believe in uh, the Apostle Paul's context, he was assuming that his audience assumed theism as well. Hmm. Um, but in 2021, when I read it as an American, um, you know, when, it, when Paul says they are without excuse, that not only means that they're without excuse because they've made these poor representations of God with their idols, but that many Westerners don't even acknowledge that God exists. And I would say Romans 1 and other parts of the scripture, uh, theism is everywhere assumed. There's really no proofs of God found in scripture. It's always assumed that we know that God exists. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I believed when I was 18. I, I, I doubted. I, I would call myself an agnostic. But I saw that the makeup of mankind, you know, Romans 1, you see the creation and you know there's a creator. But we also have a creation inside of us. We see the universe outside of us, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars. But we also see the universe within us. And we see mankind's drives and those drives, how we are put together um, shows that there is a God because of our, even because of our base human drives. So when I was 18, I realized we got hungry and there was food. I realized we got thirsty. There was drink. I realized uh, we got tired and there was a thing as such a thing as sleep. Um, there's a sex drive and there's a legitimate outlet for that as well. But every tribe and people around the globe has a religion or they believe in the supernatural. Even the most remote tribes, they sacrifice to spirits and they're afraid of the spirits. So this religious impulse is often even greater than the other impulses because people will fast. They'll go without food for the sake of religion. They'll choose to become celibate for the sake of religion. They'll limit their other drives for the sake of this religious instinct. So humans are innately put together with a religious impulse. And at 18, I realized that. And the only answer is that God made us that way. Um, Evolution doesn't really give us an answer because we don't really logically conclude that there's a God. It seems to scream at us from our very nature. Um, The only large groups of atheists are those that the government forces atheism upon. And that's because the government wants to become your God. Right. But people are by nature religious. Mm-hmm. And so they know that there's something, but that knowledge of the one true God has declined. And so people fall into sin and they forget the true God and they begin to fear the lower spirits hmm. and those lower spirits have enslaved them and they spend all their time trying to appease the spirits many times in a very pessimistic way, they don't really have a hope of a good eternal life after this life, but they don't want to be punished or tortured in this present existence by the, uh, by the, uh, wrath of the evil spirits that they know of. So why, um, for you, what's your source of confidence in Christianity? So, you know, you, you explain, well, theism, well, that that makes mm-hmm. sense. But what about particular, you know, the particularliness of, yeah. particularness of Christianity? Well, logically, every religion could be wrong. But logically, only one could be right. Because even though there is a rough similarity in their moral codes... You know, most religions say thou shall not kill, or at least thou shall not kill your friends. Mm -hmm. There's usually exceptions for those that are deemed your enemies and such. Um, But only one religion could be right. And uh, Christianity is unique among them in that it's based on a historical event. It's based on the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even the pagans attest to the birth of this movement. And second, it's the only religion of pure grace. All the other religions is, consists of you doing enough good. Even all the religions of reincarnation, you have to make merit to improve your karma. And only Christianity believes that we are saved solely by grace. 
So the the grace aspect, it um, doesn't necessarily prove Christianity, but I guess it can be pretty compelling, though. It sets it apart from the pack. Yeah. So even the unbeliever would have to admit that if they truly studied it, Christianity is set apart from the other religions, even if they were to reject it. Yeah. Are the Indonesian people happy people? I don't know. Okay. They may say they are. I mean, are you a happy person? Am I a happy person? I don't know. How do we define happiness? Right. Um, many of them do seem to have a more laid-back outlook to life. And I see Americans wearing their stress more outwardly. We even brag about our stress and our workload and our lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. And we delight in busyness. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how to answer that. Mm-hmm. Many of the ones I saw were not happy because we were in a very remote and poor tribe and many people were sick. We saw many people suffering. We were sick a lot of the time as well. Um, hmm. And then also there is a social obligation to appear a certain way as well. Hmm. And then you have those strange, very strange cultural differences where if you're highly embarrassed or even sad, some parts of Indonesia, the people will laugh, not because they're happier, because something's funny, it's because they're terribly uncomfortable. Hmm. And so they will say, oh, my aunt died today, and they'll smile and kind of chuckle. And so that appears very strange mm-hmm. until you realize that them admitting that is a stressful comment or they're trying to allay the uncomfortableness of it. They're trying to soften. They want to soften their statement with a smile. Hmm. So are they happy? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I see many of them in misery. Um, and even a lot of the business people are worked to death or um, you know, just like Americans, they wear their status or they're clawing their way to the top and such. I don't think mankind as a whole is very happy. Do you? Um, that, you know, when you um, turn that question back, um, it is kind of intriguing, you know, just to think about it, like how, how to answer that, because I'm not even sure I'm happy. Right. I've had a miserable last year due to illness. <laughs> Right. Um, I think there's a contentment in Christ, yeah. whether you're happy or not. And, yeah. uh, you know, many Christians suffer depression as well, even though mm-hmm. we have the peace of God within us. Mm-hmm. I suppose in a deep ocean, you have those currents running underneath, no matter how choppy the waves are on top, right? Right. Yeah, there is some kind of foundation there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But life does get pretty choppy at times. Yeah. And if you're poor and your country lacks basic infrastructure, basic health care, basic, basic sanitation, basic education, a lot of people are unnerved by natural disasters. Um, we don't think so much about natural disasters. Um, mm-hmm. Usually we anticipate that a place will flood or it frequently floods, so we have flood insurance. Our houses are sturdy enough so they don't collapse due to earthquake, you know, fires. We have fire codes. But in the third world, in many poor areas, a thing, a small what we would describe as small natural disasters are catastrophic. And people lose their life and their livelihood just within seconds. Hmm. And so... Um, and there are a lot of people around the world lack any sort of safety net or lack any sort of money at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're one small disaster away from starvation. Yeah. Um, well, what's the, the obstacle for them um, when it comes to giving their allegiance to Jesus. Yeah, throughout Indonesia, there is a Muslim majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Indonesia is the most populous Muslim nation in the world. And in the public schools, there are religion classes. And some of these schools, they will 
give straw men, they will give false presentations of what Christianity is. And so by the time the normal person in West Java, say, or Sumatra grows up, they've heard all the objections to Christianity and uh, that their holy book was corrupted by the Jews and you can't trust it and such as that. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a hindrance to belief. And then among the tribal people, the fear of the spirits. They may want to add Jesus, but if they get sick, sometimes they don't want to part with their old ways because they have their old ways. And can I just pray or should I work this animistic ritual like we used to in the past? So it takes a leap in order to depart from the old ways. Mm-hmm. And among the Muslim population of Indonesia, it takes a readiness to be disowned by your family and maybe even beaten or threatened in some parts, such as Sumatra or West Java. Mm-hmm. But in Papua, the animistic factor comes into play. They want whatever works. And so just like in America, you have this uh, desire to use Jesus for his benefits rather than to fall in love with Jesus for his person, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They will add Jesus if he benefits you. And that sounds a lot like many American churches as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the appeal by many evangelists, even in America, is if your life is bad, come to Jesus and Jesus will make your life better. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was happier and had more money and had better health before I ever believed Oh, really? So the prosperity gospel, I'm very bad at it. If that were the truth, I'm a failure at the prosperity gospel because I've only gotten sicker and poorer Mm -hmm. and at times less happy because I've seen how much of the world lives and that affects you and it sobers your mind and it prevents you from having a light and cheery view of things sometimes. You know, as like a church planner, a missionary, is there um, a particular, I don't know if it's like a, a method or a thing, like you're, you're telling someone about Jesus, and then um, it seems like there, there comes some point where there's a yes, you know, if, you know, like, okay, I um, I buy into what you're telling me. I'm going. I want to follow Jesus. Is um, is that the thing you're looking for to go on to the next step? No. Or okay. I, be, because I've seen being separated from our culture, I'm able to see the usual method, the usual way in which American churches operate. Okay. And they always want a method. Okay. Um, and often it becomes a prepackaged plan. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to mention, I don't want to criticize other organizations, but they will teach their missionary candidates their 10 steps or the progression. And it's good to kind of have a mental roadmap of where you want to go. But we always seem to prepackage things and try to simplify it. Mm-hmm. And then you see it all the time in missionary uh magazines, like they have missionary magazines devoted to discussing missionary issues, Mm -hmm. and they're always looking for what I would call a golden key to evangelism, some sort of key to unlock the door to make it easier. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll almost sound like a promotion. The Southern Baptists are awful at this. Every 10 years, there's some sort of new trend. Mm -hmm. Use our method and you'll see souls saved. We had this many decisions here or that. You know, let's move these people to this point of decision. It just doesn't work like that. If we go back to the early church, I believe I read that you would endure a two or three year period of intense catechization, Hmm. that you would have to go through the catechism for two or three years before they would baptize you even. Mm -hmm. And that is worlds apart from the easy believism sort of perspective that we have in America now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so usually every person that I baptized in the tribe, we had a three to six month period of going through the catechism. Mm -hmm. And they would answer back not only the questions, because that would check the memory, but there would be further questions to make sure they truly understood who the person of Christ was, what the work of Christ, what did Jesus actually do. And uh, because the relational yes I spoke about before is so easy to get. Mm. Yeah. You can go on the on YouTube and there will be I won't mention the video because I don't want to criticize them but it's basically decisionalism applied to missions. They'll say we begin to live with this tribe and the, and they'll say we didn't tell them about Jesus at first. We built up the suspense and then the time came and we gathered the village for three nights of teaching. And then at the end of three nights of teaching, we told them about the solution to sin, Jesus. And then we had everybody raise their hands or decide for Jesus. And they declared the whole village saved. And they made a video about it and they sent it back to their supporters. Um, but that's merely decisionalism on a tribal scale. And tribal people will give you the relational yes. Mm -hmm. um, I could have 100% of people decide for Christ every single day if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean a changed life. So we've seen that it's better to take the long approach and um, even to wait for them to make the initiative, to take the initiative and approach us, at, you know, such as for baptism, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so seeing how missions goes and seeing how churches operate, we've Anytime we hear about a methodology, what method are you using for missions, we usually cringe and we step back. Um, because in the past, you know, people would often pack their, pack their belongings in a coffin and then go to Africa. And, you know, many of them would be dead within five years or so. And they knew that just a long time spent with the people explaining, preaching, living with the people and possibly dying with them was necessary but now we don't really like risk we don't like our missionaries to get sick um, they need to go out with some sort of plan you know it's very very common for mission orgs to say you need to be planning your exit strategy before you ever enter a tribe and that's all well and good but Americans are too methodology oriented mm -hmm. And uh, we want those results. We're results-oriented. We want productivity. Mm -hmm. We want results. And that becomes an idol. That becomes kind of a golden calf in missions. Yeah. You know, besides that aspect of American Christianity, is there anything else that you see or that just really pops out from being outside of the culture and then coming back, you know, as far as just... Um, uh, Christians in the U.S. Um, anything come to mind? Um, I would have to say that we are risk averse. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, we are allergic to any sort of risk. And, um, you know, mission agencies, they use a term called missionary attrition. So missionary attrition refers to the number of personnel that go out. And then after a number of years, they come back prematurely in an unplanned way. Mm -hmm. It's currently about 5% per person per year. So a husband and wife that go out on missions, usually about five years, they have about a 50-50 chance of coming home unplanned due to stress, due to illness, due to lack of finances, due to marriage problems, and just due to burnout. Mm -hmm. So that's 5% per person per year for Western missionaries. They call that missionary attrition. But in the 17 years I was connected to Papua, and from 2007 to when I left due to illness in 2018, we had about three or four dozen Papuan Christians labor beside us. We worked with the Evangelical Church of Papua. We had about 21 evangelists and their families. Plus, when we built an airstrip over six years without any machines, they hacked it basically. They just basically hacked an airstrip, a dirt airstrip out of the jungle. And uh, I think the number now is eight We've had eight evangelists or their wives or their children who died because they chose to live in this lowland swamp 
where the Korowai live. So their missionary attrition rate is about eight out of 40. And that's not coming home. That's dead and buried because and of their service. And that's because of... Um, Mostly like because of malaria. Malaria? Okay. Uh, the highland people don't have malaria as much, so they come to the lowlands, and they get, they get it even worse than I do. And they don't recognize the symptoms, so they're not treated as quickly. So there's a lot of needless deaths. Or a uh, 60-year-old Wiyandi was an evangelist, and he, in Ujumbatu, 12 hours hike away, and a lot of his village were very, very sick, critically sick. So he walked the 12 hours through a swamp during rainy season to tell me, and we were able to treat all the village, and none of them died. But Wiyandi, he went into heart failure and died a week later because he walked those 12 hours to hmm. tell about how sick his village was to get them help. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so that's, so we, the West speaks of the tragedy of missionary attrition, but if, a, if, if any missionary from America dies, it's all, still all over the news. And it doesn't happen very much. But it happens every year in Papua still. Mm -hmm. But they're poor and they're barefoot and they're Papuan, so they don't make the news. Hmm. That's actually one of the reasons I'm trying to write a book, trying to finish a book this year, is mm -hmm. because I don't want the names of these evangelists to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. I want the world to remember some of them. Um, and so American churches are still very risk-averse. Mm -hmm. And there is a mindset to productivity. Even two weeks ago, I had a church ask me how many souls were saved. Mm -hmm. You know, as if that is the business bottom line. And, you know, I had to, I, you know, I had to reply, you know, who knows that? Can you tell, you know, mm -hmm. um, how many souls in this church are saved? How can you be sure here in America? And so you see... You, you can see the wheels turning in American churches and they're, they're trying to figure out if they've got the most bang for their buck, if this missionary is producing, is there a success? Is this worth our money? Mm -hmm. is, this a, is there a payoff on my investment? And then comes in uh, loaded terms such as responsibility or um, wisdom, meaning is it wise for you to take your family to a jungle where many people get sick? Mm -hmm. What is the wisdom of that? Um, but that's never an issue to the Papuan Christians. They know the price and they're willing to pay it. Hmm. And they still go out. So I think we've lost something in America. Mm -hmm. And so to, to live so many years overseas and to see how Christians operate overseas and then to come back to the churches in America, people will say, oh, it must be so refreshing to come home and get fed and refreshed by American churches. But... Sometimes it has the opposite effect, and you come home and you get irritated, and you mm -hmm. fight a critical spirit, and um, you resent some of the questions because you know the mindset out of which the questions are operating. Mm -hmm. You know uh, the questions of why you got malaria twenty-four times. What were you doing? You know why did that happen? And it's kind of you can see the thought pattern. What's what was he doing wrong? Why did he get malaria? And the Papuans know that's just the price of doing business. They don't question, why did he get malaria that much? They know if you live there, you're going to get malaria, and you might die. So what is it like spiritually doing this work? And I guess what I'm getting at is, is this, for, for you, has this been a path of like feeling really close and connected to God, experiencing his joy and so forth? Or is it more like, well, you know the work needs to be done, you're doing it, you, it's important, you're, you're glad for that, but it just feels a little bit like a grunge or something? Both. Okay. It seems like the highs and lows are more pronounced on the mission field. Okay. Because there's a great loneliness. You know, for a while, we were the only Western family there. Uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing because Western missionaries often argue and fight with each other. Hmm. Um, sometimes you're willing to show greater grace towards somebody from another culture than your own culture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, missionaries often disagree. But still, if you're the only person in a tribe for many years, it can be very lonely. And now over 
the many years, I can see great results. I can see many results. But month by month or week by week or day by day, you feel like you're not moving at all. Mm-hmm. You feel like nothing's happening. You're just there spending your life among ungrateful people in the jungle and you see no changes. Mm-hmm. And at a high cost, a lot of discomfort, a lot of sickness. Mm-hmm. And so you also need to become a self-feeder because you're there all alone and who is going to feed you spiritually. Mm-hmm. And you can develop kind of a loner personality if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those types of personalities already gravitate towards tribal missions. Those that are more loners, that are not quite so gentle, um, but those traits are not always spiritual gifts. They can be uh, detriments spiritually at times also. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and then the, the good times often happen at the same time as the bad time. I just wrote, I just wrote a description of we had a tribal woman almost die after she gave birth and we totally drained our bank account. And that was a spiritual low, but we had found out we expected everything to be zeroed out. But two weeks prior, uh, somebody had felt moved to write a check that ended up being almost the exact amount that these medical bills for this tribal woman cost. Mm -hmm. And so instead of seeing all of our accounts zeroed out, which we expected and we were willing to do, it stayed, you know, our bank account is what it was before. How can this be? Mm-hmm. And then we found out that the timing was just perfect so that God had covered the cost even before we knew we were going to incur it. Mm-hmm. And so the, those incidents, and, and that's not the only one, it can be greatly encouraging as well. Um, because, it, you know, there is a promise in the Proverbs that if you, I forget what it says, if you, if you give to the poor, you give a loan to God and God mm-hmm. will repay Right? Yeah. What is that? Proverbs seventeen nine or nineteen seven or something like that. Yeah. But basically, it tells that God will be a creditor to you, and God will take up your debt and pay you back. And there's Isaiah fifty eight. Um, I think it's fifty eight that talks about. Um, well, well, the prophet is saying. Um, you know, you're religious. You have some kind of fast going on, but it's not the fast that. I'm calling for it. And somewhere along there, he says, but if you pour yourself out for the needy, then your gloom is going to rise. I mean, it's like really uh, this language of, well, you're going to be filled with joy and life Mm -hmm. and everything if you just... So I was kind of just wondering... And Jesus says some pretty radical things that are quite uncomfortable you know, give to anyone that asks of you. And then, you know, your mind is filled with a hundred objections, but what if they're like this or what if this or what if that? Mm-hmm. And then from American churches, about 10 years ago, there was a whole wave of books about against dependency. So if you give to people, it's important the way in which you give to people and many charitable programs create dependency to make the poor depend upon you mm-hmm. instead of freeing them f- to be more independent. So there was a, a wave of books like when helping hurts so that people would not give in a foolish way so as to create some sort of unhealthy dependency in yeah. missions. But the backlash of that was I saw many missionaries default to not giving, it shriveled their generosity because hmm. they were so afraid of giving wrong that they failed to give. But if somebody is hungry, mm-hmm. you can talk about lifestyle choices later. Mm-hmm. Why don't you feed them? Mm-hmm. You know, Or if somebody is homeless in Springfield, Missouri during the wintertime, you don't have to ask them what drugs that they're addicted to. You know, yeah. if, it's, if it's 15 degrees and it's snowing, give the guy a coat. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, time for judgment or discussion can happen later. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. You mentioned uh, feeding yourself spiritually. So, 
do you have like routines or spiritual routines or anything like that um, that's helpful to you? In the village, in the mornings, I would begin each day with reading and writing. Mm-hmm. And since the schedule was the same every day, actually the village was healthier for my family because you got up when it got light and mm-hmm. you started settling down when it got dark. For many months, we lacked, for many years, we lacked adequate solar lighting. And many times our batteries would uh, go bad. So we would be living with candles only sometimes. And so um, you, you kind of had to uh, follow the sun. And so meals were always at the same time. We always ate as a family. We prayed during the meal, sang the doxology, and were able to discuss things during the meal. Mm-hmm. That's a lot easier than American life. Hmm. Uh, Americans are so taxed out as far as scheduling goes. Yeah. Uh, they got, they'll have things up until 10, 11 o'clock at night, and people don't eat together anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, presence of social media and TikTok Um, They're grabbing your kids more than the parents are able to influence them. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, village life was more healthy and more refreshing. Mm -hmm. And so you were able to maintain good, healthy routines a lot better. Bible reading and praying Mm -hmm. here in America, especially since I've been sick. And uh, if you're traveling around, those are harder to maintain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you were... An American family, um, is there anything like of the American way that you would just totally kick out? And <laughs> uh, you know? Well, you see, kids are so wrapped up in these sports. Yeah. And sports are good for kids. But, I mean, at the hotel where we're staying, there's folks that drove from Kansas City to a, for a softball game. That's their entire weekend is yeah. uh, one or two softball games, hundreds of dollars, a five-hour drive, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's hard to focus on your family in the States because there's so many things pulling you every which direction. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the economy is getting worse. So, I mean, who really is a stay-at-home mom? in America anymore Mm -hmm. and where are the traditional families anymore Mm -hmm. you know even the way husbands and wives are viewed if you were to hold to views even 100 150 years ago they'd think you were a Neanderthal or what a misogynist or whatnot if you wanted traditional gender roles Mm -hmm. they'd treat you like you were a caveman Um, but in a foreign country in a village environment where the culture is different and among some cultures, there is still a more traditional lifestyle. Those countries are almost seem safer for the family because the noise, the distractions in America are so great. Mm-hmm. And that noise reaches to all corners of the globe. You know, it's shocking when you are being treated in a Malaysian hospital, but the, what's playing on every TV in the pharmacy as you're waiting for your medication is uh, MTV or whatnot, uh, rap hmm. videos uh, hmm. with a lot of cuss words and, and uh, bad clothing. And so you see these Muslim women in their head coverings sitting, waiting for their medication, listening to whatever the rate latest rap artist is on MTV in a strict Muslim country. But the noise, the influence of America even reaches into the emergency room in Malaysia. And that's Mm -hmm. a scary thing. That is not a good thing. Right. And in their eyes, it's probably a contrast between um, Islam and Christianity. Yes, their pure traditional culture Mm -hmm. where the women are clothed and chaste, more chaste versus the American culture. Which they're seeing through our TV. <laughs> which they're seeing through our TV. Mm-hmm. And which is mainstream as well in any high school or college mm-hmm. throughout America. That has become the American norm. And so we see America as number one. Mm-hmm. 
but once you live overseas for a while, you see the great evil that is America hmm. and the bad influence that they spread throughout the entire globe. So we probably think of ourselves as number one, like you said, and we just assume everyone else sees it the same way, <laughs> but it's not necessarily true. It's, it's hard to maintain that America is a Christian nation mm-hmm. when you see the influence of it overseas. Yeah. And it's hard to believe that the American church is healthy when you see the programs that are exported, because what is exported is what has the money to be exported. Mm-hmm. And the religion that has the most money in America is the worst kind, the Joel Ostings of America mm-hmm. or the prosperity preachers of America. Mm-hmm. They package their program, they translate it, they'll even pay local evangelists to spread their method. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll hear about it, I'll talk to churches all throughout Java, all in Papua as well, and uh, some of them are being paid by these big name ministries in America. Hmm. And these big name ministries are not very solid, but they have fat paychecks. Do the people um, eat it up, the, or do do they have more discernment than that? I would like to say they have more discernment, and some of them do. And you can win some victories. And before my last furlough in 2014, they invited Benny Hinn, hmm. the prosperity faith healer. Mm-hmm. Benny Hing to Papua hmm. and he was going to go to raise money from these poor Papuans I guess his mansions are not enough so he had to come to ask Papuans to donate to him hmm. and many of the poor Papuans gave because they were told you know you give in order you give a seed in order to mm-hmm. get a spiritual tree or whatever his spiel whatever his gimmick is and uh, I, so I wrote, basically I wrote letters to the Ecumenical Council of Churches in Papua. I wrote them to my own church denomination that I work with, the Evangelical Church of Indonesia. And I got people really mad at me. I got people threatening me. The governor's wife there at the time had invited him in. I don't think she really knew what Benny had taught. And she was very mad at me. Tried to call me into the governor's office probably to chew me out, but... I was already on a plane back to America. But slowly and surely, they began to look into these claims and realize that Benny Hinn was just a fraud and a heretic. Mm -hmm. And finally, the ecumenical council churches began to duplicate at their own. These pastors are poor and photocopying is not cheap. And they started duplicating my report, my letter about Benny Hinn, thousands of copies. And finally... The denomination I work with sent out a message to all their members not to attend or help him in any way. Mm-hmm. So it was a victory, hmm. but it took a little bit of push, mm-hmm. and I got a little bit of uh, what backlash for it at first. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we can say foreign churches are less discerning, like in Africa or Indonesia, but the American church, how discerning are we because we're the exporter of this? Mm-hmm. You know, they're receiving it, but we're the ones shipping it. And uh, so I think churches in general are lack discernment. Mm-hmm. Even in the most solid of churches, we are far from perfect. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning how American life is hard on the family. And I think it's hard on uh, just spiritual life as well. Um, and I, I think sometimes of... Jesus, when he talks about the seed that fell among the thorns, and he says, um, this is like the cares and the deceitfulness of riches and so forth. And it's like, we're just, we just add cares on top of our life and add it up. And it, and I guess the, the harm there is like that just consumes us, keeps us distracted. We don't, um, but Jesus, um, is, seems to say that this is a danger to us spiritually having all of these cares many of them in America we voluntarily take on like we we could shed the cares many of them I think you know yes yeah but we're not willing to simplify our lives mm-hmm. um, 
Yes, I, I think there was some Asian lady on some show a couple years ago that was popular and trying to minimize everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, her motto was something like, if it doesn't strike joy, throw it out. Or, right. It was, the whole show was about simplifying your life. Right. Instead of adding more and more, it was mm -hmm. to reduce. Yeah. And uh, that is totally not an American way of life. Mm -hmm. Every old person that dies here, they got an entire attic, 10 times more possessions than mm -hmm. the normal Indonesian owns just stuffed in their garage mm -hmm. and then the kids are having to sell it all they give it away wholesale every time i come back to the states for furlough i rarely have to buy new things because people have so much junk that they throw out that is still perfectly good mm -hmm. uh, our affluence has become a poison to us mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. just walk into a walmart or any normal Baptist church, and you will see that most people could not trek through the jungle to help the sick because they can't even walk through Walmart because they're grossly, morbidly obese from all of the riches and the affluence of America. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that sounds, I know that sounds awful and critical, but we are being poisoned by our affluence. Mm -hmm. um, nowhere else in the world are the poor on a whole obese you know I know people that are on their last plate of rice or they look like skeletons because they're poor mm -hmm. and yet in America we think that this is a normal way of life in the history of the world this has never happened we've never had this level of peace and affluence mm -hmm. and yet we're dying of heart disease we're dying of diabetes we're an unhealthy people, physically and spiritually. Um. <laughs> Something I was going to ask you about is just the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so there's a certain aspect where we, it means something to us because that's our salvation, you know, that we're forgiven through it. But sometimes, to me, it, it seems like there's some kind of, um, during times of suffering, something just super, there's something comforting like nothing else is and just meditating on Jesus, the, the only perfect, righteous man um, suffering, like the most complete suffering and, and that just makes it okay for us. Uh, like he's our champion or, or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And it's almost like beyond putting words to it or explaining it, um, it, it seems sometimes like it, there's something deeper than just the explanation. Well, I'm forgiven now. And, you know, that seems a little bit too um, easy just to say it. It seems more of a mystery or something like that. I don't know. I, I, I thought I would just ask you... Um, any thoughts that you might have upon this center thing of the Christian life and um, of Christianity itself and, um, you know, has, has it made an impact on your life? I'm sure it has because you're a Christian, <laughs> but um, what, are, what are your thoughts about that? I've seen that the way of success in the world is a lot different than the way of success through Christ because the world glorifies power and status and riches, but the way of Christ is suffering and the cross. And uh, in the world, you get ahead by stepping on others, making others suffer for you, gathering riches, being healthy, having status. And yet Christ was mocked and suffered and died for our sins. And that is a huge contrast and we see this even in America, many churches have gone the way of the world instead of the way of the cross. Uh, I think Martin Luther called it the theology of power versus a theology of the cross. I'd have to look into that, but he did a good job of differ differentiating those two mindsets. The theology of glory, meaning you get the glory versus the theology of the cross, meaning the way forward is on your knees and suffering. Hmm. And we can 
mentally assent. We can say, yeah, yeah, I believe that. But then when we get into the Christian life, things are not getting easier. And I'm like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm doing this, and my life is getting harder. Mm-hmm. But then you have to realize, what do you expect? You know, uh, Jesus lived in heaven, perfect. He left to be born on earth among the poor, most oppressed people in the Roman Empire. Uh, had to flee for his life. Uh, he said he had nowhere to lay his head. He worked hard. He endured a, a rough existence. And then he poured himself out for others. And at the end of the day, he was not given accolades, except for very briefly as he entered Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Until a very short time later, they were shouting, crucify him. And he died with the full weight of the wrath of God upon him. And yet the American church thinks that it's a huge sacrifice if a Christian buys a plane ticket to go overseas and endures a few bouts of malaria. But when you see the work, when you see it through the work of Christ, and we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, anything that we do is very small and is not done as a means to earn brownie points or not even done out of duty because we can justify that it is not my duty to go overseas as a missionary. You know, Christians have duties, but the missionary call, I don't believe, is given to every Christian. Mm-hmm. We are all called to support missions, but not, our, not all are called to go. But to keep it in perspective, what did Jesus endure? He came to earth. He bore the full rate of weight of God's wrath. So it's very easy to get on a plane and even to get sick. And if I die, I won't bear the f- full weight of the world's sins. I won't even bear the weight of my own sins. Jesus has already bore that for me. So I just, you know, nobody wants to die. It's very natural to not want to. Mm-hmm. You're not any less holy for trying to preserve your life in that way. God has just made us to try to live. Mm-hmm. But when we die, we get promoted. And during this life, we are to follow our master. And our master said to take up the cross, not to take up a cushion. Mm-hmm. You know, we were to expect suffering, not to expect affluence and fame and yet we want those things. And I, I know it's affected me to be criticized or even to receive threats from people overseas. Uh, but our Lord endured so much more for us. So we know that after the crucifixion, there was resurrection. And so we have hope beyond this life. And that allows us to be willing to lay down our life for things because some things are more important than life. Mm-hmm. And it's good to remember that. It's good to remember that you will die. It's good to remember that your death will probably not be pleasant, but you will die anyway. And it's good to remember that death is not the end. And just how short our life is. Hmm. Yeah. And given that, I think it would free the American churches. Those churches in America that are still true gospel churches, I believe it would free up a lot of people to go overseas to be able to shake off the poison of their affluence, uh, to minimize or to simplify their lives, and, and to be able to place themselves in a region or in a position where they can help others. Because um, there are people that have no access to health care, no access to education, and most importantly, no access to the gospel. They've never truly known a Christian. They've never heard from the scripture they don't know who Jesus truly is and so who is going to tell them if if it's not us then who and in the history of the world it's never been easier i don't i don't have to get on a boat for 6 months right you know william carey had to board a boat for months and months you up until covid you could get on an airplane 48 to 72 hours later you land in your country of missionary service. And uh, 
you know, jet lag is minor compared to weeks and weeks on a boat and uh, seasickness. Mm-hmm. So we have it easy. You know, we fly in missionary airplanes. We don't have to walk everywhere like, you know, Jesus did. Mm-hmm. You know, um, being in the jungle, I'm struck by how many references there are to God will not allow your foot to strike a stone. You know, there's lots of those. He will not allow your foot to be dashed upon a rock. And that only makes sense if you're in a culture where you walk a long distance outside in rough terrain. Mm-hmm. And uh, you remember that after your 10th hour of hiking and you stub your toe on another root wad or you trip over a vine and you splash into a river for the third time that day. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I was just kind of curious. Uh, do people have cell phones over there? They do now. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, there are boys that grew up wearing leaves in tree houses. And it has been a great source of comfort because when I was so sick that basically I spent every day in bed, I started receiving messages from these boys. Uh, Bapa, I'm graduating school and next year I want to go to Bible college. Please pray for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, on Facebook Messenger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but of course, every technology that enters is also a source of temptation as well. Yeah. So they will buy their cell phones and they will download pornography mm-hmm. on the phones and show it to their friends in the village. Hmm. So technology is never truly always a source for good. It's always, it's never neutral either. It, it's always used for evil as well. Yeah. And so every change, every every technological change has both its good and its bad. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate your time with me and just getting your thoughts on things. Um, so we need to wrap up to let you go. Uh, why don't you give your own, uh, whatever you want to give, your website or just whatever so people can find out more about you. That yeah, do you post any visual link to these podcasts? Yeah, yeah, there will be a link. Okay, I'll, I'll send it to you and you can okay. display it on the screen. Okay, sounds good. Okay. okay, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you, Trevor. Mm-hmm.